Summer on her podcast. Barry Weiss described my guest today as one of the best writers in America. And I think she's right. During the month of December, here at Lean Out, I'm speaking with independent journalists that I admire. And I'm particularly pleased to bring you today's conversation with a Substack writer who's had a big impact on my thinking. Freddie DeBoer is an independent journalist in Brooklyn, New York. He's the author of The Cult of Smart, How Our Broken Education System Perpetuates Social Injustice. And he writes an eponymous newsletter at Substack. Freddie DeBoer is my guest today on Lean Out. Freddie, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. As you know, I've been following your work really closely, so it's a great pleasure to get to speak with you today. Your work spans a range of topics, including education, politics, mental health, modernity. Since this series is on independent journalism, I want to focus on your writing on the media. Probably your most famous piece of media criticism is the essay, It's All Just Displacement, in which you argue that the outrage that the mainstream journalists have directed at Substack is displaced anger about the state of our industry. Walk me through the material conditions in the industry that you were drawing attention to in that piece. Sure. So if you look at newsrooms, uh, newspaper newsrooms, and specifically, which was once like the heart of the American media in a 10-year period from 2008 to 2018, the total staff headcount was cut in half. So the papers that were producing not just national news, but crucially local news, many of them have been gutted. Some of them have been shut down entirely. There are mass layoffs in that space all the time. So Gannett, which is a umbrella company that owns many smaller papers and, and USA Today recently had a brutal round of layoffs. The newspapers are in bad shape. The New York Times is flourishing right now because they got into the digital subscription business in a big way and it's been very effective for them. But other papers have had a much harder time matching their success, even the Washington Post. So probably the second most prominent newspaper in the United States. They recently had to close their magazine division for cost-cutting reasons, etc., Ad revenues have been stagnant or declining for a long time. Unfortunately, part of the problem with online advertising is that, like anything else, it's subject to the law of supply and demand. And there is effectively unlimited supply of space for online advertising. So if you want to advertise on a billboard in the New York metro area, there is just a certain number of billboards on which you can place your advertisement. And so that caps, puts a certain level on the overall supply, which drives up prices that does not exist in online spaces, right? There is just always more online space in which to place ads. And so that's connected to just aside from newspapers, a constant series of layoffs that have happened in the digital media space, the shuttering of many different publications like Gawker, like The Outline. <clears throat> I could sit down and make a list of a dozen easily from the past five years alone. Every time that one of those places closes or goes through a long, a big set of layoffs, BuzzFeed is another very prominent organization that's been cutting recently. Every time that that happens, it's essentially a game of musical chairs, which means that there are fewer positions in the industry and just as many people who want to fill them. 
And so the more prominent people who get let go, um, so for example, CNN has had a big bloodletting recently. Chris Caliza, Saliza, who is like sort of like CNN star, or one of their stars, or was, he was let go, he'll be fine. But the question is not, you know, the, the people who are considered stars in the industry, it's the marginal or median worker. And unfortunately, the space is contracted and there just is not as many jobs as there are people to who want to do this. And one of the things that you have to understand about media, particularly in New York, is that there's a lot of really young people, some of whom are able to survive because they have their parents' wealth to essentially subsidize their lives in New York, who will work for close to nothing. Mm. This is one of the one of the fundamental problems is people will say, well, I need to get my foot in the door and there's no way that I can afford this lifestyle long term. But I really, really want to work for someplace professionally. So I'll take forty thousand dollars a year and live in New York, which puts a downward pressure on wages for everybody. Um, I think that this crowdfunding sort of revolution that's happening with Substack and Patreon, I think, is um, salutary. And I mean, it's subsidizing my life right now. It's paying for my life right now. But it doesn't work at scale and it's not a good fit for hard news. And so the outcome um, is pretty bleak right now. Mm. And I do I do want to come back to that for sure. But first, I want to talk about the kind of ethos that is driving the mainstream media that you're talking about in this piece. Um, if you'll just bear with me, I want to quote this paragraph because I think this paragraph had more impact on me than any paragraph I've read in a couple of years. In the span of a decade or so, essentially all professional media not explicitly branded as conservative has been taken over by a school of politics that emerged from humanities departments at elite universities, began colonizing the college educated through social media. Those politics are obscure. They are confusing. They are socially and culturally extreme. They are expressed in bizarre vocabulary. They are deeply alienating to many, and they are very unpopular by any definition. Vast majority of the country is not woke, including the vast majority of women and people of color. How could it possibly be healthy for the entire media industry to be captured by any single niche political movement, let alone one that nobody likes? Why does no one in the media seem willing to have an honest, uncomfortable conversation about the near total takeover of their industry by a fringe ideology? This question, I think, is super central. But when you put this to many of our colleagues, they would deny, and I, I think quite sincerely, this bias exists. How do you think through that? So I think that the first thing is that like any rigorous empirical, if you look at any rigorous empirical effort to determine the partisan composition of media, finds that it is dominantly democratic, the registered Democrats. So if we want to, if we want to keep it simply in the realm of partisan politics and party identification, if you go to a New York Times, the vast majority of the people who work there will be registered Democrats. Now, the sort of social justice politics that I'm talking about in that post are not synonymous with democratic politics. In fact, most Democratic voters do not endorse them, um, but they are overwhelmingly popular within the media. Now, the first thing to say is, is that I would argue that simply the existence of that intense of a numeric advantage that people who embrace those politics have. Simply the fact of that numeric advantage in these positions implies the existence of bias. And the reason that I feel comfortable saying that is because if it was the opposite way, 
If it happened to be the case that the vast majority of the media was made up of people who identify with the alt-right, there is no way that liberals would not conclude that that was somehow nefarious, right? Like, in other words, if if there was a very strong Republican bias and conservative bias in supposedly nonpartisan media, then people would cry foul. And you have to sort of apply the same standard to the other side as you apply to yourself. I also just think that you know, the way that these politics have spread and the way that left politics has spread in general in the last several decades is by treating them as a kind of a fad or a in-group with which to belong. So rather than a sort of more traditional way of sort of working out position as a kind of political science and gradually winning converts over through persuasion and through reference to material conditions, the way that socialism, for example, and I'm a socialist, but the way that socialism became so common within the media is because it became cool to be one. And the problem with that is that these things are are inevitably fickle, right? I mean, mm. fashions go in and out of fashion. They go in and out of style. But it's also, it's a very bad match with the current era of media because, look, it's always been the case that there have been newsroom dynamics where people want to fit in. If, I, if it's 1975 and I'm a staff writer for the New York Times, there are certainly pressures that are on me in order to try to fit in with the other people who work in the building. However, the building is only so big. There's only so many people. I'm speaking to a broader public and I don't necessarily have an echo chamber of people around me who are at sort of watching everything that I do and commenting on it. Um, with the rise of Twitter as being essentially the interior conversation of the entire media, as, as Twitter became more and more prominent as the way that the media understands itself, communicates with itself, digests what's happening within it, and crucially enacts punishments for people who step outside of the consensus, the Twitter consensus, so that, you know, if, if you write something that is considered offensive to Twitter, you will be subject to intense group <clears throat> shunning and, and admonishment, et cetera. That uh, means that these politics sort of spread even to people who would not ordinarily feel particularly comfortable with them because they feel like there isn't a choice. That if I'm going to log on to Twitter every day, which people have convinced themselves is necessary for their careers and be a member in good standing, I have to have the right politics. And the right politics happen to be a particularly weird, narrow vision of social justice politics that comes out of, you know, the English department at Brown, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I mean, I think the popularity contest part of it is something that the public probably doesn't understand a lot about. And I think is kind of e even incomprehensible sometimes for those who are in it. Um, another one of your lines that really has stayed with me is this one. Everyone who works in the industry lives with a dim but persistent feeling that they have committed some kind of faux pas and are paying for it, but never know where, what or why. Give me an example of, of what that looks like. Um, it's, I think, uh, a, uh, the way that I would describe it is almost like an immune system response to the existence of a scenario in which your career can very, very suddenly be narrowed, be, excuse me, can very suddenly be essentially decapitated if you write or say the wrong thing. And so if you want to police yourself, 
in order to main, maintain the right public facing politics so that you don't become the subject of the next cancellation attempt. I think it, it creates in people this sort of constant gnawing low level fear, but everything that they put out there, is this the thing that's going to, that's going to ruin me? And what that tends to produce is extremely conformist writing. It produces a narrowing of the available set of potential points of view. And it results in a lot of people who never find themselves in the position of being the enemy of their profession, but they also don't have any way to really distinguish themselves. I think that Mm. one of the things that people chafe against, but don't know what to do about is, you know, Writing safe keeps you from becoming Twitter's main character of the day, but it also probably keeps you from being someone who's individual enough to be able to do this professionally for the rest of your life. I mean, again, there's just a limited number of seats at the table. The industry is shrinking rather than growing. And especially if you want to write for places where prestige can do things like get you a book contract someday, right? So working for the New York Times is not very well paying, but is a open secret in the industry. But one of the nice things about having the New York Times next to your name is you can get an agent very easily, a literary agent, and you can go sell a book, et cetera. Um, I think people are aware that they need to do something to distinguish themselves, but they're not sure what to do that won't get them in trouble. Mm. And in terms of Twitter, uh, Jesse Single had an interesting piece recently. He was writing about, if you want to look at some of the Substack people's kind of superpowers, their secret superpower is that they're willing to ignore this dynamic on Twitter. You yourself are not on Twitter at all. Do you think that gives you a big advantage? Well, it's good for my mental health. Um, I will say that I have a Twitter account that has never tweeted or liked anything and is followed by no one but which I just use to sort of have a feed and I check it twice a week. So I have um, on Tuesday and Thursday mornings, I have, I just do, I'll spend a half hour looking at what's happening on Twitter. I kind of feel like I have to know what's going on um, in terms of like the broad dynamics in order to have things to write about. But, but that's it. I don't, you know, unless something very big happens, I mean, like, you know, the, I, I checked Twitter a lot the day of the election, this of the um, midterm election, because there was so much information coming in, but generally I'm off of it. And yeah, I mean, it's a super power to the extent that like, I'm just a very bad match with Twitter for my particular kind of neuroses. And yeah, I just don't know what people are saying about my writing most of the time. And that is good for me. My commenters certainly let me know when they don't like something and they frequently don't like what I write. And I can sort of track and see how many subscriptions I'm losing versus gaining. But Mm. in terms of fitting in with the broader media narrative, I don't even know what it is half the time. So I'm not in a position to sort of have to conform to it. Mm. Coming back to this social justice politics that we have been touching on, you know, you, you use that term social justice politics instead of woke. But those of us who are trying to critique this particular political ideology hit a roadblock in that the movement so strenuously resists classification. You wrote about this, one of, I think, your funniest essays uh, about, you know, just give me a term I'm allowed to use for the sweeping social and political changes you demand. But as you pointed out in other essays, this is part of a broader, unhelpful trend, which is that participants in social justice politics keep trying to exempt themselves from doing politics in general. Talk to me a little bit about that tendency. Yeah, I mean, it's the it's the feeling that so one of the things that I like least about social justice politics is that they have this sort of 
endlessly expanding definition of of what it means to be harmed or of what violence is so that more and more and more things are presumed to do harm or be an example of violence or whatever and more or less the explicit position of many people is to disagree with me is is to do me harm is to do just to do violence to me and it's a perfect example of the sort of rhetorical sleight of hand that goes on in this world, which is you take a banal sort of statement about things that we hope to achieve in our culture. Like we want people to be able to, who are from marginalized groups, not to feel that they're being harmed by the dominant majorities that in and of itself expressed that way is, is not offensive to me. But if you then say, you know, trying to name my movement and to pin it down for what it is and to criticize it is an act of violence against me, that's where I cry foul. And part of the difficulty in opposing social justice politics at the moment is that there's always the sort of anodyne, it just, you know, woke just means believing in equality, you know, is a a line that you hear a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, When, of course, it also encompasses things like when disability activists say that phrase, I see what you mean is ableist because not everyone can see, right? Like that kind of taking things to their most absurd possible conclusions, but then defending them only under the rubric of, I just want equality. And that's sort of the situation that we're in, which is that they will take another big one is, you know, you know, talking about how writers should read is a ableist statement because not everyone can read. Um, I don't know anyone who can who can't read, who can write, but it's so it's it's a, a question of having a superficially unobjectionable politics about equality uh, and and harm prevention, but that the expression of which is taken to these absurd extremes in ways that undermine the rights of all the rest of us. Mm. I did want to ask you, too, about the left's opposition to free speech. I want to quote from one of your essays here. I need free speech because I don't have the faith this army of sneering white dudes has that I know everything, that every debate has already been settled and we just need to let the goodies rule over the baddies. I don't think everything is obvious. I don't think all political questions are easy. In that essay, I just quoted from your criticizing NBC reporter, Ben Collins. He was one of the most outspoken and nastiest critics of Matt Taibbi in recent days, claiming Taibbi's reporting on internal Twitter documents around the Hunter Biden laptop story was essentially PR for the richest man in the world. Um, How do you think through the Twitter file story and what does the mainstream media's reaction to it tell us? Well, first of all, I'll say that, that Ben Collins is a, a good example of is an avatar of a particular kind of guy in media right now, which is, again, it's difficult to distinguish yourself and to make a name for yourself so that you can be permanently professionally involved in this in this business. And he does not appear to have any discernible talent. And so the way that he achieves his status is to be the loudest hall monitor, right? So like one of the tried and true ways, if you are someone who is ambitious but talentless in media, you just become the most sort of vituperative and loud and and prone to excess critic of other people's right to speak. Um, The Twitter files to me are an indication of things that I think most people will now admit, which is that the Hunter Biden laptop story should never have been censored. And to me, that story is very similar to efforts to, to censor the lab leak thesis uh, regarding COVID-19, which is that the meaning of either is debatable. I mean, 
the the actual revelations about the Biden administration in Hunter Biden's laptop um, appeared to be minor. Certainly, Hunter Biden has benefited from a lifetime of nepotism, thanks to his father. But that's just standard order, standard practice in Washington. But the question is, is was it so obviously uh, uh, sort of fake or uh, Russian disinformation or whatever that it should have been censored completely? And the answer to that, of course not. Similarly, with the lab leak, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I can't tell you if COVID-19 came from a lab or not. But the idea that reasonable people can't present the evidence that it is a lab leak and, and argue about it is absurd to me. And again, it gets back to this um, sense in which, you know, one of the things that is sort of cross-ideological and, and cross-political about our contemporary political culture is um, the stance of treating everything in the world as being something that you already know everything about, right? This sort of cult of the savvy where you are not supposed to feel surprised by any development. You're not supposed to feel that any development has left you in a position where you don't know what to do. You, you're not supposed to have any development where you are put into a genuine crisis in terms of, you know, what is the appropriate way forward here? We're supposed to all be completely all-knowing and savvy at all times. And that, to me, is even more widespread than than social justice politics, like the the addiction to seeing yourself as someone who's never surprised by anything, who who saw it all coming, who says, "Oh, of course, this is what happens." You can you can go around on Twitter and look at journalist after journalist and writer after writer for hours and not find a single tweet that suggests that the person has had some kind of a conflict of values. But mm. politics is all about conflicts of values. That's all that there really is. Mm-hmm. And coming back to Substack, where we where we started and about the rise of the independent press in that piece, it's all just displacement. You pose a question to journalists. Why are so many people subscribing to Substacks? What is the traditional media not providing that they're seeking elsewhere? How do you think through that question? Yeah, sure. So um, I think that there's a lot of people who are uh, very decent uh, people who mean the best and who are left wing in a traditional sense of wanting to help the people who are at the bottom and in to uh, engender equality and to ensure justice, um, but who are deeply, deeply alienated from the contemporary social norms of what is establishment liberalism or whatever you want to call it. I have, you know, you know the default subscriber to my uh, substack is someone who considers themselves a liberal or a lefty who wants universal health care and who wants to have criminal justice reform. And so in order to reduce uh, the number of police shootings of black men and who want to have um, a more equitable culture in terms of gender in the workplace, et cetera, um, but who doesn't want to be reprimanded for saying, I see what you mean, because that's ableist or whatever, right? Who doesn't want to live under this surveillance regime? I, I think that that is something that's powering a ton of this. I mean, look, faith in media, they do these polls about this, and it's at an all-time low. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's just a sense that the, the media has abandoned any pretense to objectivity. And when you do that, um, you know, in, in 2020, Wesley Lowry, who is a very sort of connected and paid up kind of writer in the media, he wrote a piece for the New York Times, Times saying, we need to let go of the idea of objectivity or neutrality in media and what's been happening because this was 2020 and there's all the George Floyd stuff and what was happening was good because journalists were now accepting their moral clarity, 
And that was that was the heart of his argument that journalists and the people in the media now had moral clarity, so they no longer have to have any pretenses towards neutrality. And there's a lot of problems with that. But one of the biggest problems with that is that if your moral clarity tells you that half of the population is evil, right? Half the vote, half the voters in the country are evil. Um, then you are cutting in half your potential audience, right? I mean, I think it's important to say like one of the things that's happened and part of the reason why the, the financial situation has gotten worse for media is that it's a very sort of unwelcoming place to an ideology that for, you know, as much as I disagree with it, you know, conservatism is a dominant force in American politics in many ways there are, are uh, significantly more self-identified conservatives in our country than there are self-identified liberals. And it's not just going to go away. And what happens when you, you know, when you make a publication, when you make your publication home only to liberal and democratic leaning thought is it just pushes them more into the direction of Fox News and Newsmax and Breitbart. So we saying conservatives, uh, you know, they have this crazy media that tells them all this misinformation and that leads them astray and it foments extremism. But what did you do to create a space for me, for conservatives that is more constructive? And the answer is nothing. Mm. And it just talking about the, the independent media as a whole. Now you had said previously, one of the things that independent journalism does not do particularly well is investigative reporting. Of course, it's, you know, high cost, takes a lot of resources to do that. How else do you think that the independent press is doing right now? What are what are the benefits and drawbacks of this rise that we're seeing? Well, I mean, the benefit for one thing is that a lot of people are being able to do this professionally. You wouldn't have been able to do it ordinarily. I mean, I think it's really important to be clear about the economics of this, right? I'm making enough money with my publication that it's more than any publication would ever give me to be a staff writer, right? There are certainly people who make more than me in the establishment media, but most of them are on legacy contracts like David Brooks or someone like that, right? Those are like seven-figure people. Um, It's just I have very low overhead, right? I mean, I am my publication. I sometimes use a copy editor and I have occasionally hired an illustrator. But other than that, the only thing that I need to do is to pay for my own life. And it happens to be the case that a lot of people, again, if they're invested in you and they think that you're speaking a certain kind of truth that's not getting told, they're willing to pay $5 a month to read you where they wouldn't be willing to pay $5 a month to the New York Times or the Washington Post, et cetera, and where that money would have to be divided up you know, a thousand different ways. Um, so these are just lean operations. Uh, I know someone like Barry Weiss is building a whole big thing, and that's good for her, and she makes a lot more money than I do. But for me, I think the biggest thing is that it allows independent voices to be independent because you can pare yourself down if you have to and live within your means and just be independently uh, funded. And because I'm reader-funded, I don't have any conflicts of interest, right? Like everything that I say is exactly what I mean. Um, I certainly am subject to thinking about like, you know, will I be able to continue to freelance if I do this? Will I lose subscribers over that? So of course you're, everybody's serving some master. I mean, I'm serving my, my subscribers, which is not nothing certainly, but I think that that is probably the biggest benefit. I also like the fact that this allows for extreme specialization, right? Like, um, there's a substack that which the name of which I can't remember, 
which I've read a few times that I enjoy, which is a subsect purely on construction engineering. So it's the only thing it covers is how does <clears throat> how do construction workers do engineering in a way that produces what they make. And there's subsects just about cricket and there's subsects just about herbs and spices and there's subsects just about sneakers, etc. Mm. Um, again, like for for most people, they wouldn't want to pay for those things because they're not interested in them. But a small group of particularly passionate readers can fund a newsletter like that. And so we get stuff that's very specific and highly ta- tailored rather than an army of generalists. Mm. And what we had just talked as well about low trust. What do you think that the mainstream press would need to do to regain more of the public's trust going forward? I mean, I think that there has to be an acknowledgement that like, I mean, part of the issue is that because they marinate it in it every day, um, they are people who are working in publications where everybody thinks like them. They have curated their Twitter feeds to be of people who think like them. And the only people who don't think like them that exist in their mental universe are far right MAGA fascists, etc. There's just there's no sense within these institutions that social justice politics are, in fact, quite unpopular. That There's just not a lot of people who endorse these you know, they often will talk and act as though the average black person, for example, is extremely woke. It's simply not true. All the data tells us, the polling data, the voting data, that in fact, uh, black Democrats are a moderating force in the party, that they're the most conservative element of the uh, racial uh, group within the, the, uh, the discourse of the Democratic Party. So there has to be some sort of an acknowledgement Maybe I think these politics are correct. That's fine. But I have to speak a language that's more broadly accessible. And if all I'm talking about is like phrases like black bodies or, you know, doing violence to or whatever, I'm losing people who have come to me looking for, you know, simple answers about, okay, what's happening in Ukraine right now? Exactly. You know, where are the troop movements, et cetera? What are the facts of the matter? And there has to be some sort of, you know, broader group uh, understanding that the whole media crawled into a very narrow hole and is still there. Hmm. Oh, that's a good place to leave it. Um, I really appreciate your writing, Freddie. And thank you so much for the conversation. Thanks for having me. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Listener.